Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We're on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And in this conversation, we have the privilege to speak with Dr. David Van Drunen about two kingdom theology. Welcome to the podcast, brother. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, we're uh, really appreciative of your willingness to take some time and talk to us about Two Kingdom Theology. Of course, we're going to uh, link to your books in the show notes, uh, but you are a first-time guest on the Covenant Podcast, so would you be willing to share a little bit about yourself with our listeners, uh, whether that's your upbringing, your educational background, your current ministry context, whatever you uh, want to share with our listeners? Sure. Uh, I was uh, raised in the Chicago suburbs and uh, raised in the Christian Reformed Church, uh, which is a historically Dutch Reformed uh, uh, church. And uh, I was uh, I was educated originally at uh, Kelvin College, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and then uh, went out for my Master of Divinity uh, to Westminster Seminary, California, where where I now teach. And uh, after that, went uh, back to uh, the Chicago area and uh, did uh, a few more degrees, including a, a, a law degree at Northwestern University and a PhD uh, in theological ethics at Loyola University, Chicago. So uh, that's my educational background. I was uh, ordained to the ministry at uh, Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hanover Park, Illinois, while I was working on my PhD. And uh, did some pastoral work there for uh, for a couple of years, and uh, just uh, almost immediately after uh, finishing my PhD, I uh, moved out here uh, to uh, Escondido, California, which is a little north of San Diego, uh, where I've been teaching uh, systematic theology and ethics at Westminster Seminary, California, since 2001. So this is. Uh, this is my 23rd uh, year uh, teaching here. So uh, it's been uh, it's been great. I, uh, I'm very grateful for my work here. I get to work with uh, uh, a lot of great people, both faculty colleagues and students. And uh, it's a it's a wonderful environment for for studying scripture and uh, theology and thinking about uh, the Christian ministry. So uh, I. I enjoy being here. I uh, I certainly enjoy being a, a scholar and doing uh, research and writing, and uh, I do uh, a, a lot of preaching and uh, do various sorts of work for uh, the church as well uh, at large. So uh, that that's my background. I have a, I have a wife and a twenty six year old son, and. Um, uh, I think that gives you a little uh, a little taste of my biography. Yes, sir. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Van Drunen, for joining us today and for sharing a little bit about uh, your educational background and ministry context, as well as your family. I'm sure you're a busy man. For our listeners who've who've encountered some of your books, I mean, those things are, are about that thick sometimes. So you're, you're definitely pr uh, producing some quality resources for the church at large, and we are immensely grateful for that. But um, the topic of today's conversation is going to center on a uh, specific subset of public theology, and, and that's the uh, the doctrine of two kingdoms or the subject of two kingdoms 
um, or Two Kingdoms Theology, as I've even heard the label, and, and feel free to to, to tell us uh, the proper terminology in just a few moments. But um, I wanted I wanted to maybe start by uh, just defining those terms as 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 you often hear them utilized. Uh, what would you say would be public theology? And then how does two kingdoms or two kingdoms theology relate to that that broader umbrella uh, of that term? Um, we may have some listeners who aren't familiar with those concepts. So just kind of thought we'd we'd start the conversation by just clarifying terms and and making sure we understand where you're coming from and the rest of our discussion. Yeah, sure. I, I I'm I'm happy to do that. Uh, of course, I don't you know I don't have a monopoly on defining terms and uh, th all of these terms are are used differently by different people. So I, I think that's that's helpful to uh, to keep in mind. Uh, public theology. This is not a term that I I have ever used to describe uh, my work uh, that I can recall. Usually, uh, public theology refers to uh, a sort of Theo a way of doing theology that engages public issues. Uh, and I suppose, I think it would be fair enough to say that uh, a lot of the stuff that I have written could fall under that category, but it, it's, it's, it's just not a term that I have used. I, I have used, in, uh, particularly in uh, a fairly recent book uh, of mine, Politics After Christendom, I've, I've used the term political theology to describe what I'm doing there. And that's sometimes used similarly to public theology. I would take political theology to be a kind of a theological engagement with political community and our political institutions, uh, sort of an exploration of what what is the purpose of uh, civil government? Uh, what What is the proper function of our political communities? What's the relationship of Christians, either as individuals or as the church, to our uh, political institutions. Uh, I would take uh, the idea of uh, the two kingdoms as uh, as uh, I, I would take it primarily as a doctrine. Uh, that that that's the term that I have preferred to use. Uh, you you have. I uh, use the terminology of uh, two kingdoms theology, and I know that there are many people who who use that terminology, and I I, uh, I have come to dislike that. I, it's I, I'm not trying to be critical of people who use it, but I just for myself have come to think that's not the most helpful way uh, to, to speak about it. I would see myself as uh, someone who is devoted to. Uh, Reformed theology or Reformed covenant theology, uh, which I hope is a biblical theology, and uh, so so I, I would not see myself as sort of devoted to or a practitioner of a two kingdoms theology that is in some way eccentric or idiosyncratic. Uh, what I would say is that the two kingdoms uh, idea is is a doctrine that I would want to place within. A broader Reformed Covenant theology. So, um, you know, we can I we can talk in more detail. I think you would like to talk in more detail about what exactly the doctrine of the two kingdoms teaches. Um, but in in general, it gets at the idea of uh, the idea that God is the ruler of all things, uh, and yet He has these two distinct ways of carrying out His rule. In this world, uh, a a rule according to his uh, as the creator and sustainer of all things, 
uh, what we might call a his 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 civil or common rule, and also uh, his rule as our redeemer. So a kind of redemptive or spiritual uh, rule uh, that that God also carries out in this world. So uh, I would I would say that. Uh, the idea of the two kingdoms, for me at least, provides a really helpful framework, a theological framework for doing things like political theology. So I would say that as I do political theology, uh, as I write about political theology, it reflects the doctrine of the two kingdoms. That's sort of a, a foundational idea that helps to give structure for the way that I think about engaging uh, topics like the purpose of our political institutions. But I would say that like the doctrine of the two kingdoms, uh, I think is a broader idea. So it's not just about politics or something. It, it's also, um, it also provides, a, I think, a helpful framework for thinking about all sorts of ways that we as Christians want to live faithfully in this world and to engage broader cultural uh, sorts of activities. Oh, that's really helpful. Uh... Thank you for the, the clarification for uh, your preference of these categories, uh, perhaps more helpful to, to speak of uh, the doctrine of two kingdoms. Uh, that could be useful as we move forward in our conversation, because our next uh, part of this conversation, we want to see where we get this doctrine from Scripture. Uh, as Protestant Christians, we recognize that the Bible is the ultimate authority for what we believe and how we should live uh, for the glory of God. So with this in mind, uh, how would you go about demonstrating the biblical basis for two kingdoms, uh, the doctrine of two kingdoms? Yeah, I think there are there are certainly different ways that one might do that. Uh, the the way that I that I guess the the primary way that I have found most helpful uh, is to do it uh, through looking at the biblical covenants. Uh, so um, certainly coming uh, from and working in the uh, the reformed tradition it is uh, uh the biblical covenants have been a very important way to organize our theology and to think about how god carries out his plan through history and what our relationship uh to god is and uh that certainly covenant is a theme that pervades the scriptures and why i, I think this is so helpful for thinking about the two kingdoms is because i think we can say that we as Christians today live under two covenants. And I think these two covenants that, that we live under match historically more or less what is meant by the two kingdoms, uh, that God carries out his true rules through two covenants. And uh, I think we, we could say that the, the, the heart of the story, uh, the, the most important covenant we live under is the covenant of grace. Uh, so uh, in God's covenant of grace, he has uh, promised a savior for his people, a, a, savior, a savior from sin uh, and uh, the hope of everlasting life. And uh, God, has, God has carried out his plan and fulfilled his promises. Uh, we see this uh, under the Old Testament. Uh, God made these great redemptive promises to Abraham. Uh, he continued the work of redeeming a people uh, as he brought Israel out of Egypt and uh, blessed them in so many ways uh, under the Old Covenant. And now in these last days, uh, 
through the new covenant, uh, God has established his church and is ministering Christ to his people. And that's that gets to the heart of our faith. But uh, the other covenant that we live in, uh, live under as Christians, uh, I would refer to it as the Noahic covenant, uh, the covenant that God entered not just with his special people, his chosen people, but a covenant that he entered with the entire human race, in fact, even the entire universe. So after the great flood, uh, we read at the end of Genesis 8, uh, first part of Genesis 9, that God entered this covenant with Abraham, with all his, I'm sorry, with Noah, with his descendants after him, with all living creatures, with the earth. <laughs> uh, there, there's this, uh, this this universal covenant and God has made commitments uh, to this world that he would sustain it, uh, that he would preserve it uh, for as long as this world endures, which which means that this is still in effect today. And uh, so that means that even unbelievers are in covenant with God. Uh, the animals are in covenant with God. Uh, this this world in which we live is in covenant with God. And one of the things that's 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 really interesting is that in this Noahic covenant, uh, God has instituted civil justice. Uh, uh, Genesis nine verse six. May, I, may, maybe I should back up a verse. Uh, Genesis nine five. God says that He is the one who will avenge human bloodshed, and then Genesis nine six. We see that He delegates this task in part to human beings. So He says, "He who sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed." And that's obviously a very it's a very short statement, and yet there's a lot packed into that because God. God desires that there be justice in this world, that when there is violence uh, of one human being against another, God wants justice done. But he, he indicates here that he wants us as human beings to take charge of seeing that justice is done, uh, that, that there is a call to the entire human race uh, to, uh, to pursue justice. And and that's really important that it's for the entire human community. Uh, it's for all who bear the image of God. It's not just for those who are true believers, or those who profess um, the true God in faith. And so I have tried to argue that this is, this is really foundational for thinking about um, our, our political life, our legal life, and even our broader cultural uh, endeavors. And uh, I might also add in that Noahic covenant, uh, God says, be, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This kind of repetition of what we find in the original creation mandate at the end of Genesis 1. Uh, so family life, childbearing, child rearing, uh, this is not something unique to Christians. This is something that God has ordained the entire human race uh, to do. So we see in this Noahic covenant, there's, there's a lot that we share, that we as believers share in common uh, with unbelievers, uh, that uh, we're not the only ones who can get married and have children. Uh, we're not the only ones uh, who can be engaged in the life of politics or law. Um, these are things that we share uh, with our unbelieving neighbors. And it seems to me that this uh, understanding this makes sense of so much of the rest of scripture. I think it makes sense of why Abraham, uh, as we read 
the accounts of his life in Genesis, why is it that he can he can trade uh, and do have property transactions with unbelievers? Why can he engage in legal discussions with his pagan neighbors? Why can he enter covenants? He actually enters political covenants or treaties with uh, with uh, some of his 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 pagan neighbors. Well, they were they were living together under this Noahic covenant. There was a common life that they could share uh, and that he properly shared with them. Uh, obviously things worked, I say obviously, it's not obvious to all people, uh, but I think it's uh, it's quite clear that things work differently for Israel under the promised land. Uh, uh, when, they, when God gave them the Mosaic law and brought them into the land of Israel, that was a holy land and God gave a law to govern their their life as a holy people but so interesting that when god exiled them because of their sin and they went to babylon they didn't know how uh, how are they supposed to live well jeremiah 29 tells them that they're to they're to build houses they're to settle down uh they could like daniel and his friends they could be involved in the political life of uh of babylon and then we come to the New Testament and we read, you know, places like Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2, that civil government is legitimate, even though the political rulers of that time were, they were pagans. They were not, they were not believers. And yet they had a legitimate function in this world and believers were to be properly submissive and pay their taxes and, 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 and to give them respect. Christians were not to start their own little Christian ghettos their own little mini theocracies in some kind of holy land but they were under the new covenant god wants christians to be everywhere in this world and to live at peace with all people as far as possible you might think of first corinthians 5 where um uh paul and he urges the church to be faithful in church discipline preserving the holiness of of the church and yet and he says you know they're um uh, even though in the church there should not be idolaters and uh, adulterers, etc., um, he says, you know, I'm 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 not talking about the world. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. Uh, we are going to have to associate with those who worship different gods, uh, those who uh, don't adhere to all the same moral standards, uh, that we do. Uh, we're not called to leave this world. We're called to be in this world. Uh, and this is getting to be a pretty long answer. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of ways that one might approach, uh, this, this subject. I mean, I, I've, I've appealed to a lot of different texts, uh, uh, here, and I think, uh, some some people might prefer to use some of these other texts or ideas as as a starting point, uh, but I I think that looking at this in terms of these two covenants uh, is is really helpful. So uh, I I'm a member as a Christian. I am a member of the covenant of grace, and I participate in all the redemptive blessings of Christ. And I am uh, a member of His church, and I'm committed uh, to that. But at the same time, uh, I'm also, I have obligations in this broader world uh, to try to live at peace uh, with my, uh, with all of my neighbors and to try to promote what is, what is just uh, among them. Uh, so uh, I, 
if you'd like to follow up on that, that's fine. But that that gives you a little bit of a taste of the way that that I see this grounded in scripture. No, that's very helpful, uh, Dr. Van Drunen, and we we appreciate uh, long answers on the Covenant podcast. It, it makes for a uh, very edifying and and fruitful resource for our listeners to um, to think about and to interact with. So we appreciate that, and we we certainly appreciate you uh, showing us uh, the biblical basis for. Uh, some of the doctrinal and, and practical implications of uh, the doctrine of two kingdoms. And um, we also recognize, uh, as I'm sure you guys uh, emphasize at Westminster Seminary, California, um, that there, there's value in looking to scripture for insight. That's our ultimate authority for life and godliness. But there's also value, of course, in looking to church history and, and seeing how other believers have thought about different doctrines and, and have put certain doctrines into practice. And I, I want to now ask you if you'd be willing to give us a sketch of how this idea of two kingdoms uh, has been advocated in generations past. Um, and maybe as a follow-up or a segue from that question, uh, is it necessary to hold to a particular theological tradition uh, to embrace the doctrine of two kingdoms? In other words, is two kingdoms tethered to a particular theological tradition or a particular theological framework? Uh, how would you go about answering those questions? Yeah, yeah, that's a good, it's, uh... Those are good questions, and uh, it's, uh, it's hard to give a really, really brief answer uh, uh, to that. I mean, I think the if you think about it historically, uh, the the idea of the two kingdoms as a kind of a theological category, uh, you, you don't see that until the Reformation uh, in the 16th century. Uh, but I do think it's really helpful to see that there were there were elements of this idea uh, going all the way back to the very early church, and e even if this terminology of two kingdoms wasn't used. And so, uh, uh, I sometimes point uh, people to uh, this early letter uh, to Diognetes, uh, uh, which this unknown author uh, is talking about how Christians. Um, even though they're separate from the world, uh, they, you know, they're, they're not idolaters and uh, they, they, they adhere to the teachings of Christ. Uh, and yet they, you, you can't distinguish them by the clothes that they wear or the language that they speak or their obedience to the civil laws, uh, that they are, uh, they're, they're, they, they are living in this world and sharing a lot of things in common with unbelievers. And yet, on the most important spiritual things, they are they're radically distinct. And I think, you know, this is kind of a mysterious document because we don't know uh, who the author was. We don't even know exactly the date, although it was certainly very early. And yet, so, but we see something here, I think, of this basic idea. And uh, I, I also think it's helpful to think about Augustine's uh, work on uh, the two cities idea which is not identical to the two kingdoms historically, but it gets at a lot of the same basic ideas where Augustine said, you know, we um, uh, each person is a member of one city or the other, these two cities with uh, two eschatological destinies, either heaven or hell. And uh, Christians are members of the city of God. Everyone else is a members of this, this, this earthly city. But one of the things that that's really interesting for for Augustine is how he, you know, he speaks about how we, who are citizens of the city of God, are on pilgrimage in this world, and we live alongside of members of this other city, 
And kind of like this this earlier letter that that I mentioned, you know, Augustine will say, well, you know, we're, we're we don't have any problem with following a lot of the customs of the earthly city. I mean, we will speak the same language and wear the same clothes, and 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 yet um, there are things that make us rad radically different, and we all obviously have this radically different eschatological destiny. Um, so those are some really important ideas from the early church. Uh, I think there's this idea of the two swords uh, that uh, is, or, or the two powers uh, that's operative through the Middle Ages, which I, I, I would disagree with. I would disagree quite significantly with some of the applications of that. And yet, you also one of the things that is involved with that idea is that there are, in a sense, that there's distinct jurisdictions of the church and the state. Uh, they're not, they're both legitimate institutions, but they haven't been given the same responsibilities by God. And it seems to me that that also is, that's, that is a lot like the two kingdoms idea later on. And so I think that also is a kind of a predecessor to it. But then when you come to the Reformation, uh, major figures like Luther and Calvin um, utilize this idea uh, specifically of the two kingdoms. And the, both the Lutheran and, and the Reformed traditions continued uh, to use this. Uh, the, the Lutheran Reformed versions are not identical. I think there are some commonalities. Uh, I certainly have my my, my my biases, my my allegiances are with the reformed uh, rendering of this. And as I was saying earlier, kind of the, the the basic reformed early reformed idea uh, is that uh, God rules all things, but He carries out this rule in these two distinct ways: a kind of a creational, providential rule on the one hand, and then this redemptive rule on the other hand, and. Uh, it is the church that is the special institution that in which God is especially carrying out his redemptive rule. And the officers of the church uh, carry out their responsibilities under the lordship of this, of, of Christ as, um, as the redeemer. But on the other hand, there are, uh, there are authority structures in this broader world, which we have to have to respect. Uh, and these authority structures derive their authority, not, not from Christ the Redeemer specifically, but from God, uh, who is the creator and sustainer uh, of, of all things. And so uh, as the Reformed tradition developed, it, you find a number of early Reformed theologians who are appealing to this twofold rule of God, and specifically this twofold rule uh, in, in Christ. Um, and they will use that, among other things, to explain why the church has certain sorts of responsibilities and a certain kind of authority, whereas the civil government has a different kind of responsibility and a different kind of authority. And uh, one of the things that does mark that, some, some of that early uh, reformed two kingdoms doctrine is that they were still working within a kind of a Christendom context, as I would call it. And they they did believe that civil magistrates had certain responsibilities to be protecting the true church, to be punishing blasphemers and heretics. And um, that's something that uh, began to change. And I think began to change in a good way. Now, uh, you're probably 
interested in the fact, and probably a lot of your listeners are interested in the fact that there were there were Baptist uh, theologians who also used this idea of the of uh, the two kingdoms, and uh, there were there were some Baptist theologians then who uh, used this to promote a. a, a certain convictions about religious liberty and a separation of uh, uh, church and state. And there were, as time went on, there were more people in Presbyterian Reformed churches who also came to embrace religious liberty and uh, uh, kind of a separation of church and state the way we would tend to think about it in sort of First Amendment American terms uh, uh, today. So. Uh, I, I think a, a, a lot of that history sort of got lost in the 20th century. And part of my work, a fairly big part of my research and writing has been to try to call people back to knowledge of that tradition and to try to give it a biblical defense of, for our own day. Mm. Uh, Follow-up question. This is unscripted. So if... Uh... We don't feel comfortable with this answer uh, off the top of our heads. We can, of course, edit it out. Uh, but I'm curious in um, our articulation of this doctrine throughout church history, uh, where or if uh, the doctrine of two kingdoms can be found in our confessional standards. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I have I've tried to make the case that you can see it it's not exactly explicit, but it's, I think, pretty clearly implicit uh, in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And uh, I don't know if, do you, do you subscribe to the London Confession? I, I, I don't know. It, uh, so I, I, top of my head, I don't remember how exactly these are, are, are expressed there, but there probably is something very similar there. But uh, it's, it's interesting when the Westminster Confession is uh, speaking about um uh the church uh it speaks about the visible church as the kingdom of christ and it it and i think that is that's very striking in comparison to a lot of people in recent years in reform circles who like to talk about you know all of life as the kingdom and bringing in the kingdom everywhere and redeeming all things for the kingdom Westminster Confession is quite clear that it is the, the visible church that is the kingdom of Christ in this world. Now, I would want to add of, you know, ultimately the kingdom of Christ is the new creation. Uh, but uh, the Westminster Confession is uh, making a very strong statement about the visible church as the kingdom of Christ here and now. Whereas when uh, the Westminster Confession speaks about uh, civil government, um, it speaks of it as as uh, deriving its authority from God the Creator, and I think that's not a mistake. That it speaks about the church in terms of the kingdom of Christ, and it speaks about uh, civil government as deriving from God the Creator, and that's simply reflecting 17th century Reformed two kingdoms categories. Both church and state are under the authority of God, but in, in somewhat different ways. Uh, and uh, I think you can also see this in the Westminster Confession when it's speaking about um, church, um, church assemblies, th thinking about uh, synods or councils and that they have no authority 
to be um, adjudicating civil matters. Uh, this is, uh, I think this just reflects a kind of a predominant uh, two kingdoms idea uh, that was uh, that was present in 17th century uh, reform thought. So, so I think, so those are a few considerations there. You know, it just occurs to me, you asked me a second question uh, a few minutes ago. And I think I answered the first, but I don't remember what the second question was that you you asked me. So if you want to follow up, please do. No, you, you answered it. Um, I, the second part of the question was, the: uh, is there a particular theological tradition that one must yeah. embrace in order to espouse a doctrine of two kingdoms? And, and you noted how, um, of course, you have your, your confessionally reformed um, Presbyterian realm, but also some Lutheran realm as well that, that would hold to that. I yeah, that. I, I might also add that uh, one of the things that I, you know, I, I don't think I quite realized this early in my scholarly career, but at, I certainly have come to realize this over time is that there are actually kind of similar, at least analogous debates going on within Roman Catholic circles and Eastern Orthodox circles that go on within Reformed circles or uh, evangelical circles that and I, and I think that what, what, what I mean by that is that you have people in in those traditions that are that are debating in a sense uh, do we do we think that our political communities and maybe our the, the kind of our, our our broader cultural life that that has some sort of a uh, some sort of a distinct integrity? An integrity distinct from the church and God's redemptive plan, uh, or do we want to see some sort of an integrated, holistic, uh, civil uh, religion or civil profession of Christianity? And it 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 seems to me that this is kind of a basic a basic issue that Christians have to try try to resolve uh, and those debates find their kind of find uh they they, they take certain forms in d different shapes in different traditions so yes yeah, so i think the, the answer is is that you don't necessarily have to be part of a particular tradition um to hold you know the doctrine of the two kingdoms uh per se but even if you are outside of reformed or lutheran circles um somewhere else in the like a broader christian world you're probably going to hear debates that have some resemblance to what to what we're talking about this morning mm -hmm. yeah and that's a good place for us to transition to our next question um over the past century there appears to have been some challenges to this doctrine of uh two kingdoms that we've been discussing and uh this has been expressed in various ways systems like establishmentarianism or theonomy or perhaps different expressions of Christian nationalism are just a few that uh, come to mind. So in your opinion, uh, what do you perceive to be the greatest challenge to this doctrine of two kingdoms and how would you respond to these challenges? Yeah, these are, uh, again, Interesting questions, I think important questions, in some ways complicated questions historically. 
Uh, because as, as I was noting, there have been plenty of people through history who have adhered to a basic two kingdoms idea and yet have wanted to adhere to some sort of Christian society ideal. And so um, I, I'm going to answer the question in a way that reflects my own convictions. And I think the way that two kingdoms tends to be used today, which is the idea that um, we we really do need to make a clear distinction between uh, the church as God's redemptive rule and our uh, political and legal and economic and other kinds of institutions as reflecting God's uh, common uh, uh, preservative rule. And I would say that uh, if, if if I was going to try to sum up the challenge that I see, uh, it's a kind of a totalizing of politics. Uh, and what I mean by that is I think there there is, I think there's a widespread human longing for some kind of holistic community. Uh, I mean, you might say if we go back to the Garden of Eden, there was like a holistic community, right? I mean, there was, everything was holy. Um, all parts of life were integrated and devoted to God. And I think in, in the fallen, miserable human race, there's a kind of a longing to recapture something of that integrity, you know, something that will bring us together as a community and make us whole again. And I think among fallen human beings, there is this tendency to see that in that politics or maybe it's a little bit broader than politics as we would see it, but it's somehow in our, in our civil life, in our civil institutions, uh, that there's kind of this longing to bring us together and to provide some sort of holistic hope for uh, the human race. And, and, and so there, therefore I think that there is, there's always been a tendency among human beings, fallen human beings, to incorporate religion into politics and into our broader Christian life and, or I'm sorry, our, our, our broader civil life. And I, I think as, as we know, I mean, in, in paganism, I mean, it's very common to, to incorporate religious rituals and religious commitment into, into political life. Uh, I mean, just in the news, I mean, I mean, like right now, within the last couple of days, there's been uh, a lot of uh, publicity about uh, Modi in uh, India and, you know, his his attempts to try to establish this Hindu nationalism uh, in India. I mean, there there's an example uh, of this. And I can understand for those who aren't Christians who don't have the hope of an eschatological city of God. Uh, I can understand why people are trying to find something. They're trying to build the city or build a nation here and now that can sort of provide hope for our souls. Um, and I think part of the problem with this totalizing is that, uh, that there's this tendency then for, for politics to become really, really important, kind of an all-consuming thing. And it's so important to win political battles because it's all about the soul. It's all about, you know, this is where our hope is. And I, I, I'm afraid that Christians fall into that far too easily. 
Uh, and, you know, even among Christians who might be sort of theoretically small government people who would say, oh, no, they're, they're against uh, totalizing politics. Well, yeah, they might be small governments in, in some ways. Um, but I think the, uh, this, this quest for a Christian nationalism or uh, quests to uh, bring uh, our civil law under, you know, under the rule of the Mosaic law, th these are in their own way, totalizing attempts. They're, they're attempts to, uh, I think, ultimately to uh, subordinate other sorts of institutions to the ultimate authority of the state. And it's, um, setting the rules and setting the bounds of uh, of who we are. And it seems to me that we as Christians ought to be resisting state totalizing in all of its forms. Uh, and uh, I don't think we as Christians ought to uh, ought to be seeking um, this ideal of Christendom, this ideal of of a holistic confessional uh, integrated Christian society. It's not something that the New Testament ever sets before us. I mean, who could read the New Testament just on its own terms and get any idea that Christ wants his people, his new covenant people to be seeking to establish uh, Christendom or some some kind of version of that. I, it's hard for me to see how anyone uh, could uh, could get that idea. In fact, I think you get kind of just the opposite idea uh, reading the New Testament. So um, that might be a bit of a rambling answer, but you know, I, I it it seems to me that uh, uh, we as Christians ought to be eager to keep government in its place uh, and. Uh, to resist these kind of totalizing uh, tendencies that we see, and I think that are that are tempting to a lot of Christians. Completely agree with you, Dr. Van Drunen. I really appreciate your your, your thoughtfulness and uh, winsomeness, even in answering uh, that question. And uh, as we prepare to to wrap up our conversation today, do you have any final thoughts or recommended resources that may be helpful to our listeners to further study? Uh, this doctrine of two kingdoms, uh, any maybe even encouragements that you would provide to our listeners at this point? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess in terms of encouragement, uh, I mean, I think it's, uh, especially as we are, I mean, we, we have entered and we're going to be living in 2024 in a very hypercharged uh, political uh, environment, uh, at least here in the United States, you may have, uh, listeners uh, in, in other places as well, as though, although uh, I'm sure they'll hear a lot of American political news as well. But, you know, I think, just think it's important to remember that the Lord is, he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And, you know, as Isaiah 40 reminds us that he's the one who raises up Kings and puts them down. And it's, and remember that God has He's made promises, he's made commitments uh, to this world under the Noahic covenant and that he is going to uphold this world. And and especially, of course, he has made promises that he is going to uphold his people. And 
And uh, we need to have trust in the Lord uh, that the the progress of Christ's kingdom doesn't depend on the next election. Uh, the 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 uh, the progress of Christ's kingdom doesn't it's it's not determined by the state of the financial markets or the inflation rate. Um, and it's not it doesn't depend on whether we win or lose this or that particular culture war. Uh, we need to be faithful uh, in the callings that we have been given. We keep preaching the gospel. We keep building the church as the Lord gives us opportunity in our communities. We try to be we, we try to be faithful. Uh, we try to promote what's right. We try to promote what's what's uh, what makes for peace and, and, and justice. Uh, but we have to be we have to trust the Lord and to know that all is in his hands. And he's told us ahead of time, we are going to be exiles and sojourners in this world. I didn't talk about those texts earlier, but, you know, I think first Peter two 11 is a really important verse for us. Uh, we are exiles. We are sojourners in this world. And uh, if, you know, if we find ourselves living in the midst of, turmoil, whether it's political turmoil or economic turmoil, you know what? Uh, we shouldn't be surprised by that, but we just have to keep trusting the Lord and being faithful uh, in whatever callings he has uh, given to us. In, in terms of reading, I mean, I, 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 I mentioned some works earlier, this, uh, this early uh, church epistle to Dionetes. I think that could be an encouraging thing for people to read, just to get a sense of the way early Christians uh, looked at these things. Or Augustine, City of God. That's a really big work, but you know, you could look at Chapter 19 as an example of where Augustine develops uh, some of these important things. Uh, you you mentioned my my book, um, Living in God's Two Kingdoms. That might be. Um, something that uh, some readers would find helpful. I've, I've, I've tried to write that at, uh, at a level that you don't have to be a scholar uh, to read that. Uh, so I, I hope that it could be helpful for, for many people. Uh, a more recent book of mine, uh, Politics After Christendom, which I think I mentioned uh, earlier, that engages more specifically with political the theological uh, issues that might be of interest uh, to some readers. And you can also see in those books, I, I interact with a lot of people there. So there are a lot of other resources that uh, that your listeners might be alerted to uh, if they would look at those books. Well, Dr. Van Drunen, thank you so much again for joining us on the Covenant Podcast today. It's truly been an honor to have you on our show and we hope to continue profiting from all of your work in the years to come. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's been uh, it's been a privilege to be here with you. Thanks. Yes, sir. And to our listeners, we want to thank you again for your continued support of the Covenant Podcast. Until next time, we wish you grace and peace. God bless.